0: Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we welcome in Carlo DeFlorio. Chief Services Officer at ACA Group and former head of the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, now the Division of Exams, as well as Brian Rubin, a partner and leader of the Evershed Sutherland Securities Enforcement Practice and former counsel to the enforcement divisions at both the NASD, now FINRA, and the SEC, to discuss the issue of CCO liability and the newly proposed NSCP Firm and CCO Liability Framework. In our headline section, we look at the recent attention and rulemaking onslaught in the private fund space and discuss cryptocurrency enforcement trends. And finally, we'll we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of History Has Your Back, where we honor the legendary Chinese workman and builder Yi Kaizan to teach us a compliance lesson about precision. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, at the end of January, the SEC proposed amendments to form PF. Similar to the Form ADV, Form PF is used for reporting by select SEC registered investment advisors that manage private funds. The SEC stated that the proposed amendments are meant to enhance the ability of FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, to assess systemic risk in light of the growing private fund industry. A day later, in a risk alert from the SEC Division of Examinations, the SEC highlighted compliance issues found during the 2020 exam period of private fund advisors. The division say that the alert was meant to help SEC investment advisors review and enhance their compliance programs altogether. Finally, just a few days ago, on February 9th, 2020, the SEC proposed extensive new regulation of private fund advisors under the Advisors Act. The SEC stated that it recognizes the important role private funds play and their advisors play in the financial markets and that the purpose of the amendments as outlined in the rule proposal and the related fact sheet, is to expand the regulation of private fund advisors. The proposed new rules and amendments would require a few of the following things. First, quarterly statement, which would be distributed to private fund investors quarterly, including information related to fees and expenses, compensation to the advisor or its related persons, and fund performance. Private funds would be required to have a financial audit conducted at least annually or upon liquidation, and in each case, delivered to private fund investors properly after the audit has been completed. With regard to secondaries, private fund advisors would be required to receive independent fairness opinions related to advisor-led secondary transactions as a type of conflicts of interest check. There would also be certain types of prohibited activities, including for a private fund to charge for private fund advisor to charge certain fees and expenses, including fees for unperformed services or fees associated with the examination or investigation of the advisor. In addition, with regard to side letters, side letters could not not provide preferential terms to certain investors related to redemptions from the fund or transparency. And two, preferential treatment in other areas would be subject to a disclosure requirement. So what's the practical takeaway here? Well, between the amendments to Form PF and the risk alert, and now these amendments to private fund reporting under the Advisors Act, signal this incredibly increased focus on the private funds industry from Chair Gensler. And this focus is not going away anytime soon. Many of the compliance efficiencies highlighted in the risk alert have been priorities for the SEC, including false or misleading fee disclosures. And advisors should be, would do well, advisors would do well to review their policies and procedures as well as the disclosures in offering and related marketing materials in light of the issues noted in the risk alert. It definitely feels like we are at an inflection point in the private funds industry And for those that are active in the space, if you have thoughts on any of these proposed rules, please make sure to get your comments back into the SEC by April 11th. In our next headline, I recently came across an article on J.D. Supra from the law firm Quinn Emanuel, which did a review of 2021 trends in the SEC crypto enforcement action space. The authors of the article noted that Chair Gensler has not been forthcoming with indicating how the SEC's Division of Enforcement will approach crypto assets, technologies, and other related platforms. They go on to note that the number of crypto enforcement actions brought in 2021 was slightly under those brought in 2020, from 26 to 21. While the overall numbers were slightly down in 2021, The percentage of crypto enforcement actions in 2021 that alleged fraud virtually matched that from 2020, 61.5% in 2020, 61.9% in 2021. In addition, the number of crypto enforcement actions brought against individuals for offering securities in unregistered transactions was increasing. And finally, the split between disgorgement and civil penalties appears to be shifting, particularly following the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in lieu, but disgorgement awards remain significant in in at least one particular crypto asset case. What does all of this mean in 2022? Well, the authors of this particular article believe that the SEC will bring increasing numbers of crypto enforcement actions with a focus on offers and sales of securities in unregistered transactions. And they anticipate that the SEC will continue to target the listing and trading of crypto assets on U.S. platforms. The SEC likely will increase its focus on individual liability as well, including by senior executives and gatekeepers, and in those cases in which there are, no, even in those cases in which there are no allegations of fraud. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I'm incredibly pleased to welcome two very distinguished guests to discuss what is for many of us an incredibly important topic that affects not just our professional lives but but even many times our our personal lives and livelihoods in an increasingly in an increasingly complex regulatory environment fostering collaboration between regulators and compliance officers is critical to enhancing investor protection and maintaining market integrity through an effective compliance function and uh, as i mentioned for many of our members i I don't know that there's a, a, a more single important topic Than that of Chief Compliance Officer Liability. Over the last several years, we've uh, had some input from securities regulators, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, just let me begin by welcoming in two very distinguished guests who have quite a bit of experience in their service with some of our most important regulators, uh, including Brian Rubin, uh, who who we welcome back to the show. Brian served as counsel at both FINRA and at the SEC in a variety of different capacities. And then Carlo De Florio, who is um, who member of the NSCP Regulatory Advisory Committee and a uh, former head of the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations. And so, uh, Brian, Carlo, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today uh, to discuss this very important topic.
1: Thanks for having us here, Patrick.
0: Yeah, great. So, as I mentioned, you know, over the past couple of years, the National Society of Compliance Professionals, it, you know, formed. A regulatory advisory committee, and of the of first kind of issue it really wanted to focus on was this issue of chief compliance officer liability. And um, as part of that, you know, first there was a bit of a, a review of many of the commentary that we've had from the regulators regarding DCO, um liability. I know many people point to um, Andrew. The Resney speech uh, in 2015. In fact, at the, the NSCP National Conference, uh, we had follow up uh, remarks at the 2020 National Conference from, uh, from SEC Commissioner Peirce. Uh, later that same year, Pete Driscoll, of the then head of the Division of Examinations, uh, uh provided some remarks during the outreach uh, from the SEC and then we even had remarks from I believe it was Jessica Hopper at Finra uh, during her time on on similar subjects and then again with commissioner pers who joined uh, th- this very podcast in January of 2020 to discuss that that particular topic in early uh, uh, 2021 to help advance that that conversation and One of the things that I think is really important here, and I'll I'll even call out a specific quote from Commissioner Peirce who said the following, Uh, she said, quote, it also is time for us to examine how well the compliance rules under the Investment Advisors Act and Investment Company Acts are functioning. I, I am concerned that we appear to assume that every securities violation we find indicates a problem with the firm's compliance program. A firm that has reasonably designed policies and procedures, nevertheless, can experience a securities violation. The most fruitful way to provide greater clarity is through a collaborative effort, because we want you to be successful in infusing good compliance practices into your firms. Your day-to-day challenges and your concerns should inform the way we approach liability or compliance officers. That kind of, I would say, uh, request for comment or, again, uh, kind of olive branch to the industry from Commissioner Peirce, I think is also part of the reason uh, or part of the arc that helped really generate this conversation among the NSCP's Regulatory Advisory Committee. And, And ultimately, it led a little bit to us focusing in on, well, what are some of those practical challenges that we have? with the NSCP uh, permit with, with four compliance officers. And the NSCP given its unique position in the industry, I think really found that it had the power to help examine the practical challenges faced by CCOs as part of the firm's larger governance structure at regulated entities and provide that context that goes beyond some of the technical aspects of compliance as it relates to CCO liability. But that in mind, the NSCP conducted a couple of different surveys, and um, one was on, you know, CCO liability and views on CCO liability, and the other one was focused more on CCO empowerment and and resources. The results of the surveys were incredibly instructive and really helped to provide the, the baseline for the work that was done by the NSCP's Regulatory Advisory Committee. And this framework, the NSCP Firm and CCO Liability Framework, really provides a practical approach to CCO liability that is meant to, in fact, uh, complement the New York City Bar, uh, uh, you know, the the, the, of the New York City Bar Association white paper on CCO liability, but do so in a way that we think provides additional context that go above the, some of the technical, you know, expectations of of that. And in fact, offers nine questions to consider in cases where a compliance failure may have occurred. And so reading those two together, the NSCP framework and the New York City Bar Association white paper provide real-world perspective regarding perceived CCO liability issues and offer guidance to regulators, CCOs, and firms Regarding a legal framework for helping to analyze actual CCO liability while promoting investor protection and market integrity, I think one of the things that's really important, and again, as we start to kind of shift over to maybe a couple more specific questions for for you, Carlo, uh, specifically on the examination side, I guess a couple other items to keep in mind is you know I think number one. The idea behind the framework and and how it's going to impact the firm's larger governance structure, knowing that just like the NSCP membership and the firms involved in the NSCP membership take the shapes of all sizes and forms and investment strategies, and we wanted to make sure that these questions that are being asked in many ways also provide a bit of a roadmap. I think to help empower. Firms of all sizes and structures to provide the right resources for their chief compliance officers and to give them kind of full responsibility, ability, and authority to develop and implement and enforce those policies and procedures. And in addition, I think, and and I'm sure uh, b- both of you will, will touch on this, but there's a collaboration and and a, uh, um, kind of a, a spirit of communication that needs to occur between the cco the compliance department and the firm leadership and that also provides that that collaboration that communication between those two different aspects of the business is ultimately going to help provide clarity and agreement about ultimately what's going to be best to design a compliance program that has policies and procedures and other internal controls directly tailored to fit that firm's business and operations and ultimately to prevent those violations of federal securities laws so with that as a little bit of background for us, I'm going to toss it over to you, Carlo, to start. And I guess the first question that I would have, especially given your you know, role with the SEC for such an extended period of time, and then now on the other side where you're working with many industry participants, what, what are some ways that you think the framework will impact the examination process? In the
2: Thanks, Patrick. And um, let me share some thoughts on on your question there. And then I would also love to ask you in your role as a CCO, you see the framework impacting the CCO firm uh, relationship. But let let me get to your question there with regard to how the framework may impact the regulatory exam process. And I would start by emphasizing how the two key principles of the framework that you noted at the outset impact the overall exam process, right? And so one is, I think the NSP framework does a really good job of emphasizing taking a holistic approach to looking at the compliance program and the culture within the firm overall, right? First and foremost. And then two, uh, doing so earlier in the regulatory exam or the enforcement investigative process. So... To take that to the next level and answer your question more specifically, um, let me mention three ways I think the framework can help here in the exam process in particular. First, the NSCP framework provides regulators with a valuable set of considerations as they assess CCO empowerment, CCO resources, uh, CCO liability. Uh, And this valuable set of considerations is informed, as you noted, by two uh, significant surveys done of the entire NSCP membership. So I think that's a very valuable uh, set of data. Second, the framework provides a common language and really a shared agenda around which regulators and CCOs and firms can dialogue throughout an examination, including uh, in the initial overview meeting. Uh, or at critical junctures in the examination. And then certainly at the end of the examination where key issues are put on the table and discussed. Uh, And then third, in the event that there is a significant uh, issue that may implicate CCO liability, Brian will talk more about this. But even there, the exam team itself can use the framework and the detailed questions to evaluate the compliance program holistically and think about whether uh, in the context of the overall framework and questions that the framework asks, um, is this something that should be referred to enforcement? Perhaps we should have a dialogue with enforcement, but it brings a scope of consideration that I think is is really helpful.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- those are, <laughs> I really appreciate that That feedback. and um, as you turn the tables on me a little bit and um, and ask me about what kind of impact I might see the framework having on, you know, m- as a CCO for some firms, uh, you know, what uh, impacting my relationship and the kind of the advisor firm itself. You know, those questions that are outlined in the framework, I I think are really, really helpful in a couple of different ways. And the reason I mentioned that in response to your question is because I think they actually, if you went through that list of nine questions, you could use that as almost like a self-assessment for what kind of, you know, authority, uh, ability and responsibility you currently have at your firm and, and really in your ability to help ultimately drive uh, the, the necessary components of the firm's compliance program. And so as you're going through that and you're starting to think about, okay, well, how am well, evaluating these questions based on my own role at the firm? Are there any where right now I might have a yes answer to that kind of question? And if I do, well, then maybe that's going to hopefully – Again, the the idea too is is not just to after a violation has occurred, and and again, you mentioned Brian, and, and and he'll talk a little bit more about this specifically, but but really, these questions ultimately can also serve as again a bit of a roadmap to make sure that you do have that kind of seat at the table that we often talk about for compliance, and that you really have the ability. To do ultimately what, um, I'll speak just from the Advisors Act side, but you know what the compliance rule in the Advisors Act says that, that you should. And that Pete Driscoll referenced, I mean, time and again in that November 2020 speech when he was talking about firms need to continually look at themselves to make sure that they have empowered the CCO, right? And firm leadership needs to do that. And that needs to be part of some of that kind of annual review process. To me- that, I think, is one of the biggest benefits that, that I think maybe originally you, you both are on the regulatory advisory committee with me. I, I don't know when we initially got started that, that we had all of those different benefits in mind, and so I don't know, but you know, what are your thoughts on on that, Carla? Do you, do you see that as being
2: kind of one of those additional benefits? Absolutely. Patrick. I think, uh, first of all, your, your perspective there is really valuable, and I think it's spot on. You know, one of the things that the examiners typically experience is they come in and a firm will have sort of a first day overview of the business and describe the compliance program i think with the nscp framework that discussion might change a little bit to your point and that agenda might say before we go straight from the business overview to the compliance program overview let's let's walk a bridge in between that describes how firm leadership management and the compliance program together consider the key themes around these questions right empowerment resources seat at the table uh, liability and what's the role of each uh, part of that critical structure in making sure that the firm has the right culture overall the right leadership and empowerment and then get to the part you know the part of the program and that's—I think—that's a really terrific bridge for the good of investors and for markets, because too often the dialogue goes straight from here's the business, here's the compliance program, and then all of a sudden you're deep into a technical issue. Yeah, and that's okay. You got to get there, but I think what this is saying, and the NSCP has done really well, is say again that holistic view. Consider the context of the compliance program in the firm overall, right? <laughs> And, and then hone in on particular issues.
1: And, and I think this was sort of an accidental benefit from our framework, because when others in the past have talked about and looked at CCO liability, a number of the speeches you referred to, Patrick, they really were focused on liability issues. X bad thing happens. How do we blame somebody? How do we blame the CCO? How do we think about it? But I think we took a step back and are addressing the issues that both of you have been talking about. And I think that's really important and helpful.
0: Yeah, I wanna appreciate that, that, that additional context too, Brian. You know, Carlo, you said something in your in your response that to me, it speaks volumes. And, and it, it, you mentioned it kind of anecdotally in thinking about that that like intro meeting that often happens, right? At the beginning of an exam where the, regulated, where the um, the examination team is coming in. And of course, right, The often the, the leadership of the firm maybe usually led with the compliance department as kind of the tip of the spear is gonna have an opening meeting and kind of walk through the different aspects of the business. But that's such an important meeting. That's one of the few opportunities I think, at least early on in my career, career where I experienced my ability to dialogue with the regulators, right? And like to be able to have, like you said, a common language to speak from and in many ways, like this framework, if if you're a firm that has invested heavily in compliance and where the seat of compliance is valued immensely among the business, you could take this these questions, and you could flush them out in an opening interview with the staff and say, this is why we think we have such a great program because we get to answer all these questions in the in the in the uh, uh, sense of like I do have actual authority and power and responsibility and I do have these different things and here's how they've invested in me. And so you're, you're, I, I loved how you framed that Carlo. It's such an important point that it's both this framework, I think could be both a good source to facilitate dialogue inside your firms with management, but, but also with the regulators. What what's your reaction to that?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think as, as you were pointing out, pieces of that dialogue have happened, but I don't know that it's a typical dialogue, right? Like just the idea of the CCO and management sitting down and saying, here's why resources are so important. Here's the potential impact on liability for you leadership or for me or for our firm. Right. And, uh, we don't want to just answer these questions in a way that protects me, the CCO. We actually want to answer them in a way that protects the firm and then all of us together because we're doing the right thing. Right. And and I imagine that once leadership and management and the compliance team go through that dialogue, they're going to have a shared common language and perspective. They're gonna, it's going to yeah. be a lot easier to talk about resources. And that's a, an important part of the framework is it's it's dynamic, it's evergreen, right? Just by sure. focusing on the holistic approach and resources broadly Last year, perhaps, resources, it was fine to have a process, policies, procedures, and a person. But as everybody starts using technology to do electronic communication surveillance or trade surveillance or AML, know your customer, you not having those resources to modernize your program and keep pace, it opens the door to that dialogue with management. It also opens the door with more confidence to that dialogue with regulators. Yeah,
0: Yeah, you know, Brian, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, some of these and and it touches on exactly what Carlo was just talking about, which is some of these additional benefits that really we've been able to kind of now, as we think about the impact that the framework can have in a variety of different capacities, some of these additional benefits that have kind of come about. But, But I know one of the original kind of driving forces behind the NSCP and its regulatory advisory committee really taking up the mantle from the uh, kind of outreach from commissioner person other you know regulators that have wanted to continue the conversation in this space was so that after a compliance violation has occurred, folks that would be involved with both the you know investigation of that violation and then ultimately potentially even some of the enforcement, if if it led to that, would be working. You know, it, 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 they'd all be able to speak a similar language, as we've kind of used the, the, the analogy. I guess my question for you is, you know, we've talked about now some of the impact on firms and, you know, some of the impact on the examination process. But for you, you know, wh- where do you see there being an impact of the NSCP firm and CCO liability framework on on enforcement in this industry?
1: How much time do we have? (laughs) So, I guess I've thought about it sort of in terms of the life cycle of an investigation, and, and stop me anytime you want. But with an investigation, either there's been a referral to enforcement or it just started. There's an investigation, there's an issue that the SEC or FINRA enforcement is looking at, and there's document production, email production. So, usually the next step is testimony. So I was thinking of how this would be used for testimony prep before the actual testimony. So normally when I'm prepping a witness, I'll you know give testimony tips, listen to the question, only answer what's being asked, tell the truth, stop talking if I'm kicking you under the table, Regulators are listening to <laughs> about that one. And then we talk about job function, who you report to, who reports to you. And then finally, we deal with whatever the evidence is, the emails that have been produced and the documents and how it may relate to the issues that we think that the staff is looking at. Here, I'm going to add at least some of the nine questions that we put together in the framework. So regardless of whether the SEC or FINRA adopts the framework, these nine questions, I think, are important for us to focus on in representing the witness as well as sometimes representing the firm. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but for example, did the CCO have nominal rather than actual responsibility, ability, or, or authority? So the testimony could be. I couldn't do anything about the issue. I didn't have the authority or the ability to do anything. Or it's possible that the CCO could end up pointing fingers. So one of the questions was, was there insufficient support from firm leadership or did the CCO escalate? So in that sort of situation, we would get out and figure out what kind of defense we can make if we're representing the CCO, if we're representing the firm and the CCO, obviously there could be conflict issues. But I think the questions, at least at the start, with prepping witnesses are really, really important to focus on because it helps direct and guide how the testimony may go.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's really helpful framework. I mean, that's really helpful context, I should say, about how, again, you know, we we hope that finra and the sec and and other regulators might be able to use this framework right as a solid foundation by which to uh, conduct parts of their examination processes but again another benefit would be for uh, persons like yourself and others that might be thinking about you know how to defend against uh, an enforcement action just to be able to show that there were other mitigating circumstances involved right that might lead against a finding of you know personal liability of the chief compliance officer what do you think about i mean there you know in addition to that kind of witness prep kind of stuff brian what about you know do you see this having an impact on well submissions do you see this having an impact on you know when you're negotiating settlements and other stuff like that yeah
1: yeah even if the framework isn't adopted by the sec or finra I think it's important that you do focus on some of the issues. So a well submission, for example, you're arguing, you could be arguing as a matter of law or as a matter of fact that the staff has no basis to charge and the framework doesn't introduce new law, but it could help you focus on some of the facts. So you may be arguing a well submission that there's litigation risk, or that the staff should apply prosecutorial discretion. So that's when the framework comes into play. So another example, did the framework, did the CCO prevent or mitigate an issue, or did the CCO reasonably rely on information from the firm? So in that context, you could argue, look, there's litigation risk, or you should apply prosecutorial discretion. With negotiating settlement, same kind of thing. Among the issues you argue when you're negotiating is that there is litigation risk which therefore merits reduced sanctions. So I can imagine a number of scenarios where you could say, look, here's basic issues that the staff should have focused on but didn't really focus on them adequately. You could have asked these questions and if you did hear the answers, you would have received and therefore that merits less sanctions. Another issue is we often represent firms and individuals, and sometimes it's in the staff's interest and our interest to drop the individuals and only end up charging the firm. So I think a lot of the questions here could focus on the fact that it is a firm problem, a firm violation, and the CCO should not be charged. Yeah,
0: so I guess if you take all of that together, you think about those different elements on the enforcement side, where again you're going to be able to hopefully <clears throat> use this framework in a way that, that ultimately. Another nice part about the framework is that it is trying to. You know, my, my dad used to say that truth is a tough deer to hunt. Um, I think sometimes, and and oftentimes, you know, that once you've gotten to that level and enforcement is involved or you know that trying to again provide the proper context so that certain actions aren't viewed in a vacuum can be so critically important and so i guess just on the whole brian you know how do you think the, the framework will will impact enforcement? What, what, do you, what, what do you think is the overall impact of the framework on?
1: Yeah, as both you and Carlos said, I think the holistic approach is very important. I'm not naive and I'm not going to think that yes, the SEC is going to say this is our framework, we're going to go with it or FINRA is going to say the same thing. But at the end of the day, I know that CCOs are talking about these issues, defense attorneys are talking about the issues. So I think gradually, it's going to sink in with SEC and FINRA staff focusing on some of the issues that, we, that we've highlighted. And I think that will impact the discussions, how enforcement investigations go, and how settlements ultimately end up. Yeah.
0: One, I appreciate that. And and you actually, Brian, your response kind of leads to what was going to be my my final question for you both a little bit, which is, you know, you, you talked a little bit there in that response about how, you know, ultimately you think over time as regulators, both at the SEC and at FINRA continue to digest the different parts of the framework, you might just see it kind of uh, uh, manifest itself more in some of those different enforcement cases. And I guess to pitch it back to you, Carlo, do, w- would you have a similar reaction you think on the, as far as the division of examinations is concerned and, and more on that kind of first examination of uh, uh, part of the process?
2: I think that's right, Patrick, you know, similar to how Brian said, you know, there's a scenario under which the regulators may, you know, review the framework, apply parts of the framework, adopt the framework. Those are all all possibilities. But either way, it certainly helps the dialogue between the firm, CCO, the firm leadership and management. If there's a board of directors, it's a larger firm with the board. It certainly helps the dialogue and the education with the regulators. But where I think how I think this could be really practically applied, right, is that if I were a CCO, I'd probably want in my, you know, 20647. Annual review, uh, a checklist that's based on on this framework, and I would call it the NSCP, you know, a framework. And I would just want to make sure that I've had all the right discussions internally, and that we've thought through all these issues and taken a health check in our own firm. Do we feel good about a dialogue along any of these parameters? Mm-hmm. And then I would, as you said, introduce it into my dialogue with the regulators, as we talked about. Some really practical ways, I think, that regulators might think about it is, one, regulators are always interested to understand how firms are thinking about compliance and supporting compliance and worried about liabilities. We know from our discussions uh, and with regulators as we met with them on the framework, they want to support Investor protection and market integrity, they understand the critical role that CCOs play. They want to make sure CCOs are empowered and supported with resources by management. So the framework helps in that regard. But you could also see regulators saying, hey, why don't we weave this into our exam approach? You know, why don't we have a module that incorporates points of inquiry? related to these topics or just weave them into existing modules as additional points of inquiry. And I think that's all very much consistent with the mission and very much consistent with speeches that regulators have given over the years about wanting to support compliance, the culture of compliance and empowerment. So those could be some really practical, tangible ways that regulators And CCOs and firms take the framework forward and it becomes sort of a living process.
1: And and I would also add, I... The regulators don't want to bring bad cases and they don't want to create disincentives. So I can easily see enforcement staff looking at these guidelines and asking these questions to make sure that they are charging the appropriate people and to make sure the defense attorneys don't come back and say, you didn't ask this, this, and this, and these are the key issues. So I think over time, it's going to develop on both sides. And I think we will be talking the same language and applying a lot of the same principles. Yeah.
0: Brian, Carlo, really, really appreciate your incredibly insightful thoughts on uh, the NACP firm and CCO liability framework. I know this has been incredibly helpful for me just to continue to kind of flush out all these different ways that the framework can really help benefit CCOs uh, at, at advisors, CCOs at broker dealers and all the different ways in which they're trying to do their best to run a a well-tailored compliance program to fit with their firm's business and operations. And again, using the framework in a variety of different capacities, as you both have described, I think ultimately is gonna set that chief compliance officer up for success uh, in dealing with their leadership and dealing with the regulators down the road. So thank you both so, so much for coming on today's show and look, look forward to having you both on here at, at some point down the road. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. thanks Brian. Great hey, being thanks with you all. all. The final part of today's show features another segment of History Has Your Back. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. Serving the ancient Silk Road that formed an artery of trade and cultural exchange between East and West for more than a millennia, the Jiayuguan Pass was a solemn and splendid landmark of the Great Wall in Gansu, China. Its construction cost a great deal in terms of manpower and material resources. And the work gave rise to a number of strange and sometimes beautiful stories, legends to us that have come down over the centuries. One such legend is the wall-stabilizing brick. This legend tells of a workman named Yi Kaizan who lived during the Ming Dynasty and who was a very proficient mathematician. He calculated that it would take exactly 99,999 bricks to build the pass. The supervisor above Yi Kaizan did not believe him and said that if he had miscalculated by so much as just one brick, then all the workmen would be condemned to hard labor for three years as a punishment. After completion of the project, one brick was left behind the Ji city gate. The supervisor was happy at the sight of the brick and prepared to carry out his threat of punishment. However, Yi Kaizan said with an authoritative air that the brick had been put there to stabilize the wall and that even a tiny move would cause the entire structure to collapse. Therefore, the brick remained in place and was never moved. It can still be found there today on the Tower of the Pass. One particular aspect of the legend that I find incredible is the care and thoughtfulness applied by the workman to make sure he had the right number of bricks available for the build. Precision matters to compliance officers, particularly during Form ADV season. And while it may not always be life and death as it was for ye, as compliance officers and legal practitioners, I think we can all take a lesson from the engineer and mathematician to make sure we take the time necessary to get it right the first time. You know what they say, always best to measure twice, cut once. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Carlo DeFlorio and Brian Rubin, for sharing their keen insights on the issue of CCO liability and the newly proposed NSCP firm and CCO liability framework. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at Compliance Pod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more.